I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, a family-owned and operated investment advisory practice. I'm a certified portfolio manager, and my job is to help you make better decisions with your money. One of the things we try to avoid is investing in companies that push the woke agenda. If you're invested with one of the big firms out there, there's a pretty good chance that you're feeding the beast that hates your values. Our company is 100% conservative, and we'd love to have an opportunity to work with you. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our big, proud American Eagle logo. Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan. This is our Global Conversations in Plain Sight show. Today, we, um, we are joined with uh, Todd Wood, who's the founder of CM uh, Media, CD Media, and Mark Gordon, who I could have a long list of introductions. He is the co-chair of the America Values 2024 PAC, which is a political action committee supporting Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's nice to be here. Well, Mark, uh, we talked about booking you because um, Landis's book came out. This is a Secret Service agent who has said that there was a second bullet that he picked up. And that happened, you know, last week with, with uh, a lot of interviews that he did. And then on Friday night, uh, two guys showed up in an event for Bobby Kennedy and one guy was armed to the T and he had a backpack and there were knives and uh, at least one other pistol that was uh, in his backpack. Although he was harboring, he was brandishing one and brandishing a U.S. Marshal's badge. So it's fortuitous that we have you on today because you have done a lot of research on the Kennedy assassinations in the past, Bobby and Jack Kennedy's assassination. Let, let's talk about the security issue because Bobby has, uh, in the campaign, have asked the Biden administration for Secret Service protection at least twice this year. Now they're going to do it a third time. What's your feelings about this? Because, you know, when you take a look at the historical significance of the assassinations and, and the fact that Bobby has the last name of Kennedy, how serious is this? Oh, this is life and death serious. There's, I mean, this is no joke at all. I mean, and the Biden administration's refusal to grant him Secret Service protection is despicable. I mean, it is just another sign of just how dirty they are. I mean, in this case, I mean, and the state of our politics in the Democratic Party today, I mean, the people on the inside would, you know, like to see Robert Kennedy Jr. go away however he, you know, they can get rid of him. And I think that includes you know, any and all means they consider acceptable. You had spent last week in D.C. was the um, DNC meeting 
and where they're talking about what's going to happen at the, you know, in Iowa, New Hampshire, Georgia for the primaries and the caucus in Iowa. You know, I've been covering politics now for, you know, four decades, and I have never, ever uh, heard anything about having a caucus, having a primary, and then rewriting the rules so that the the winner of the primaries of the caucus doesn't get their delegates. You were in the room last week in D.C. What was that all about? Well, I mean, you see the Democratic Party is getting more and more corrupt. And the, you know, the the average American, the average Democratic voter doesn't like the corruption. They don't like that the Democratic Party is sold out to every interest, whether it's the military industrial complex or big pharma or big oil, whatever it is, the Democratic Party has stopped representing the people and now represents these you know, corrupt interests. And that's not a good strategy if you're looking to win a popular election. So they resort to all sorts of tricks, whether it's superdelegates or not counting votes in certain primaries or whatever it takes. And they're trying to prop up Joe Biden who is very weak and Joe Biden did poorly in New Hampshire and Iowa. So they're trying to not have those votes count. I mean, that's what the Demo the insiders at the Democratic Party are about. And that's what we're fighting against. Well, Joe Biden's never done well in Iowa, even when he ran back in the 1980s and 1990s. He's, he's never he, he never got out of the gate in Iowa in, in 1988. When he dropped out of the race, it took about four days <clears throat> when Maureen Dowd accused him of plagiarism for McKinnick's speech, which he did. He had mentioned McKinnick's name in the past and given him credit. But then, you know, he got into a riff with somebody and started accusing the guy of not having an IQ. And he and he graduated at the top of his class at Syracuse Law School, which was not true. And bada boom, he was out of the race. But, you know, the, the, the nastiness of Biden has been out there for a while, but I don't think I've ever seen it. And, and we've also had, you know, internal democratic fights going on state the national versus the state party's rules but this is different this is very different this time in terms of basically canceling voters casting of their votes and people seem to be going along with it so what is what does this tell you at this point in time because you're you're involved with the campaign you were the interim chair over at the campaign and then you, Dennis Kucinich came in and then now you're back over at the American Values 2024 as co-chair. What are you seeing out there um, when, when you are going to these meetings? Well, I mean, the fascinating, it's the, I, so I sat in on the meeting, which was incredibly boring. I mean, they're talking about, you know, so much minutia of how the primaries are conducted. And again, to some extent, they're able to, you know, by being willing to pay attention to these extremely small details and manipulate those, you know, tiny things that almost no one would bother to pay attention to, they're able to manipulate the system. So it really, I was sitting there thinking like, this is the banality of evil. Like here they are trying to sabotage the democratic process and you know, and I'm in danger of falling asleep watching it happen. And honestly, like, it's kind of amazing because the people who sit in the room, they have a lot of meetings like that. 
it, it was just really boring. I mean, the people that are sitting there, like it, it, it's a chore for them too. It's, it's almost kind of this just kind of surreal disconnect between this, you know, extremely small detail, minutia, procedural stuff and the, and the consequences of those actions. Mark, let me ask you, I, I would suggest the Republican Party is just as corrupt. Do, do you see a change going on in American politics uh, from the structural level at this point? Because we talk about the uniparty. We talk about, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people are joined to the, it's the same agenda. What are your thoughts on that? I, I mean, one of the things about studying history is that mm -hmm. you learn that, you know, there has never been an ideal age of, of purity. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there are always, you know, new attacks, new political machines, new forms of corruptions, but there, each age has, a, has its own version of that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, uh, it's, as sad as this is, it is also somewhat typical because it's not like the big corporate powerful interests in the military industrial complex were not running things in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, yeah. you know, so it's. But it's it's almost I think it's a little bit more mature and ossified. The fact that you have Biden as the front man for this. I mean, in some ways, it's it's almost perfect because he is this symbol, you know, aging, not able to get through a public appearance like it really the system, the the visible corruption is really more out front than it was a, a while ago where much of the same stuff was going on. But at least they had a a better glossy front on it. Do you think it's the just the Biden or the Clinton camp, or is it all of the Democratic Party that feels this way? I mean, again, I don't want to be, you know, so it's a very complicated system with a lot of people in there. Mm -hmm. And I also do think that the deep roots of this comes from imperfections in the constitutional system and just, you know, mass elections themselves. So we've had this, you know, system that was created with the Constitution, which led to, you know, sort of, you know, game theoretic strategies, you would almost say that, that people might play. And so people in the system, like there's, I don't think there's a lot of idealism at the center of the system. I think there's a lot of, you know, brutal, pragmatic, Machiavellian people there, particularly because I think the nice people, the honest people that get involved in the system, they don't rise up. You have to be, you know, it's a, we have a system that selects to get, you know, dirtier and dirtier and dirtier mm -hmm. in order to move up. So once you get close to the center, it's a lot of just, you know, brutal, amoral power players. Let me ask you about the because you, you are a, a student of history. Let me ask. Let's go back for a second to the to the um, body of work that you've studied in terms of the, the historical assassinations. How did you get into that? I mean, I fell down the rabbit hole when I when I started reading Robert Caro's uh, biographies of Lyndon Johnson. So again, I, you know, I'm 56. The assassinations happened before I was born. It wasn't an issue in my household growing up. Like it was just another historical event, which, you know, I kind of, you know, knew about, but didn't never thought I would particularly care about it very much. And then just because I like reading big nonfiction books, I was reading, started reading the, the Robert Caro biographies of Lyndon Johnson. And when I was, I don't know, not very far, like 150 pages into the first one, where it's just talking about Lyndon Johnson's, you know, 
time in college and he, you know, as a, as a young man, but you see how amoral he was, how determined he was to be president and how he was running fairly sophisticated conspiracies in college. And just the thought like popped into my head, like, oh my God, Lyndon Johnson's behind the Kennedy assassination. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting thought. And then a couple months later, I was in Barnes and Noble looking for a book and I was on the table in front of me was one Oswald and the CIA by John Newman. So I was like, oh, if I, you know, Kennedy assassination, let me look at this. I just started pulling this thread and pulling this thread and it just kept going. And by the time I was done, you know, kind of getting sucked into that rabbit hole to the JFK assassination and then the RFK assassination and Martin Luther King and, you know, on up to the present day, I ended up basically completely rewriting my understanding of American history since World War II. You know, there are a lot of people in my parents' generation that believe that the agency was behind the assassination of JFK at the time, and also Bobby's. Yeah, and that is, you know, it, and it's kind of interesting to me now when, you know, what, what people don't understand is that the relationship between uh, Alan Dulles and JFK, Alan being at the head of the CIA at the time, this was not the best of relationships. And matter of fact, you know, it was JFK who fired Alan Dulles after the Bay of Pigs. And then all of a sudden the assassination happens and Alan Dulles gets appointed to the Warren Commission. But what a lot of people don't know about, and, and Mark, if you can explain, because the Warren Commission was in the 70s, but then in the late- No, 70s, War, Warren Commission- They had, they had another- was, Oh yeah, then they had the House Subcommittee on Assassinations in the 70s. Right. But then yeah. I think it was 1979 that they had a review of the Warren Commission. Yeah. So, well, I mean, maybe it's just best to even just start off with a quick explanation of what happened because, sure. you know, there's a lot. I mean, so there was a coup d'etat and it was a really large scale coup d'etat, which involved, you know, most of the major elements at the center of the government. So you had LBJ and Alan Dulles as sort of co-CEOs of the assassination. So you had the CIA running the main parts of the, you know, the tactical you know, assassination. The, the, you know, in my best guess is that there were probably seven active sniper teams with probably an equal number in the background waiting to be moved into position if necessary. It was a military scale operation. I mean, you literally had, you know, National Guard troops in the background ready to come in. There were, there were backup plans to blow up a train if necessary. They were there in the hospital, you know, um, waiting to kill him there if that was necessary. I mean, the scale of the operation is kind of hard for a lot of people to to comprehend. And you also had, you know, in addition to the CIA, you had the FBI, the military, through the CIA, they bring in the anti-Castro Cubans, the mafia. I mean, and all of these are factions. I mean, LBJ, JFK was a relatively honest guy, and he was squeezing a lot of corrupt interests. He had Robert Kennedy Sr. going after the mafia, squeezing them hard. He was making peace with Castro. So all the Cubans were were pissed off. I mean, they they were mobilizing the rate. I mean, you have elements of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, a third of the Dallas PD was KKK. And so the civil rights work that that Kennedy was doing 
was able allowed them to activate the you know the racist racist factions in, in the South. You had the Texas oil interests, which were closely aligned with LBJ. So you had the right wing Texans in there. You also had the Eastern business establishment, the 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 Rockefeller interests, and I believe Prescott Bush might have been sort of running the New York uh, Eastern business. Uh, arm of this. So it's, it was a massive, massive project. And I think it's hard for most people to understand the scope of such a large coalition. And it really is. I mean, when people talk about the deep state, it's all of these interests is the together uh, that, that come together at times. Some, certain times they, you know, they fight against each other, but there are times when they come together on one of these projects, and you're able to see how the system really works. Like I mean, that's the thing about the JFK assassination is it gives you insight to these massive coalitions that typically operate behind the scenes and that you don't really get a chance to see how they're working. I think that's why understanding the JFK assassination is so important. And the fact that these coalitions didn't go away. I mean, after the, the coup of 63, you have all of these factions that are bound together like blood brothers because if the truth ever comes out, they're all going to hang. And so, you know, the fact that you have this very tightly bound criminal network at the heart of the American government, it didn't go away and it continued to control the government for years and its descendants in some ways, you know, control it, you know, I mean, up until this day, I mean, it's, it's maybe a little strong, but certainly in the, you know, the 70s and 80s and 90s, there are elements of this. One of the, the significant players in the, the coup of 63 was George H.W. Bush. He was a, a senior planner for the Bay of Pigs. And again, a lot of the operational machinery for the coup of 63 comes out of the Bay of Pigs operation. And George H.W. Bush was CIA. He was CIA since the time he came out of college, even though that was denied. He was he was basically an agent within the United States, secretly operating. And he was a, the an operational linkage between the right wing Texans and the CIA. And then he later went on to kind of as you move on into the 70s be responsible for the cover-up of the assassination. And again, I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around how large this machinery is, but here's like an interesting um, fact that just to, you know, trying to people um, process. So you talked about the House Subcommittee on Assassinations in I think 78, 79. Um, and so you had this, um, the, the House, you know, convene the, 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 these, this committee to look into the assassinations again. And the investigators on that committee were more or less on the right trail. Like they, they named a lot of the right people. They were looking, they subpoenaed a bunch of them. And a bunch of the people that they subpoenaed were guys in the FBI who were involved in the, the FBI kind of ran the cover up. They weren't so much pulling the trigger, but, you know, they were they were. I have, really I have to stop you there, because when they, when you say they ran the cover up there, the name that comes to mind that I remember is Bill Harvey. He was head of the agency's uh, station office down in Miami. But he, he, those papers on him have never come forward as well. 
I mean, there's so many people. I mean, there's so, so many. I mean, again, you, you, it, it is not a small operation. So Bill Harvey is, is, is an important player. But again, he was more on the killing side and less on the, on the, the you know, owning. You know, the Warren Commission was fed a lot of stuff from the FBI, and you had a lot of dirty guys in the FBI. And so when the House subpoenas them, so they subpoena six very senior guys from the FBI to talk about this stuff. And in the two months between when those guys are subpoenaed to when they're supposed to testimony, six of them are killed. And, and so, the, again, it's worth understanding. This is 1978. You know, mm-hmm. So 15 years after the assassination, the guys behind it are still operationally you know, together enough that, 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 that cabal behind it was still functioning to the point that it could take out six senior FBI guys. And, you know, no one, you know, no one blinks at that. And again, I can't quite prove this, but it is my clearest speculation that George H.W. Bush was the one that was running those death squads. Um, and it's very interesting. So there's this guy, um, George DeMornshield, who was Oswald Handler in Dallas for a while, and then he knows that it's hot and he's a little too close, so he runs away to Haiti for years. And then he kind of comes out and starts talking again, which again, you know, why he does this is kind of stupid from his point of view, but he realizes his life's in danger. And he writes a very interesting letter to George H.W. Bush because you can see, like, he knows that this is the guy that can maybe save his life if anyone can. I mean, it ends up not working. He ends up dead. But you can see that, you know, he knows who's in charge. And again, what was in the letter? What was in the letter? It was a plea to basically, like, it's like, I'll be good. I'll keep my mouth shut. I mean, it's kind of fascinating because it's written in such a way that, you know, he's like, you know, hey, for, I mean, I can't remember the details, but it, it's this, you know, kind of, he doesn't say, hey, we were, you know, killed President Kennedy together, but he implies that there's, you know, these ties and that, you know, that he'll be good going forward. And then, you know, George H.W. Bush writes like a letter in the file, like, I have no idea who this guy is, which is clearly a lie. I mean, so it's, it's kind of interesting there. So what is, what, what is it about that you, that you think that the American public can't handle? Because in 2017, uh, by 2017, Clinton, President Clinton said that the, the remainder of the Kennedy JFK's files were going to be released. And then Trump came in and Trump refused to release them. And then now we have Joe Biden re- refusing to release them. What does that tell you? Because you've looked at, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of documents. I mean, so, I mean, again, the, you know, the truth is, you know, this horrible, horrible truth that, you know, that, you know, all of these forces in the the government came together to kill the president. I don't know sp- particularly what's in those, you know, those uh, documents that they haven't released. I think that there'll be little things that come out that we didn't know, but the big picture we already know, and we've known for a long time. Um, uh, Vince Salandria, who was one of the great early students of the assassination, called it a false mystery. It is actually superficially obvious what happens if you think clearly. And if you're interested, um, Fidel Castro gave a speech within two days of the assassination 
we are using just information released by the U.S. government, he was basically able to show it was a government plot. Like, if you think, I mean, so just think about the official story. A crazy lone nut commie kills JFK, who is, you know, making peace with Russia, making peace with, with Castro. I mean, after the assassination, you know, Khrushchev and Castro were both, you know, very, you know, very distraught. I mean, so you have a friend or, you know, at least someone trying to, you know, end the Cold War. So, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And then he's killed by a civic minded mobster. I mean, it, it's just a ridiculous story. I mean, it, it, it's, it doesn't, but the, I mean, they were able to sell it to the public and, and just, I mean, probably the most important thing that people need to process from this is that the media was complicit. The media went along with this. I mean, there were- Well, in those, in those days, the, the, media, the media wasn't as challenging. And you, ha you have to understand that the, the culture at, I mean, they were challenging during World War II. And then you had the second generation after the Moreau boys, and they were very friendly with JFK. A lot of them from that era, even Sander Van Oker. I mean, a lot of these guys were close because Kennedy Kennedy had a pretty close relationship with the press at the time. So they were pretty shell-shocked by it. I mean, it was, it was, that was the first time in modern history that you had a U.S. president that was assassinated. Yeah, so but the they, fact they, the they, media... And they, they believe, a lot of times in that generation, they believed what the government was telling them. They believed what the cops were, were, were telling them. So they, I mean, so they you, were, have, you have a certain amount of that, but you had in 65, 66, the New York Times, you know, because there's a lot, they try to put it to bed with the Warren Commission, but stuff keeps bubbling up. Sure. So they do another investigation and they basically, you know, they, they find internally that there's a conspiracy. But they well, you have to understand, it wasn't until the 1970s when they had congressional hearings that the American public actually found out that, yes, we were in the business, the U.S. was in the business of assassinating government leaders overseas. The Church Commission proved that to the American public at the time, and then they said, we're going to shut that down. But that, but that, you know, that, that concept of killing um, country leaders hadn't really resonated in the United States until the 1970s with the church investigation. I mean, but it's not even, I mean, there's the public, but then there's, you know, because there is this idea, and I know a lot of people today trust the press. And the the idea that they would cover up something that, it, you know, when they would find clear evidence of a conspiracy behind the coup of 63, and then they would bury that. And that they would do, be able to do it across every major media outlet repeatedly, even up until this day. I mean, again, you know, there have been so many good books, literally hundreds of decent books on the Kennedy assassination. And you would think that, you know, maybe one person at the New York Times might have read a good one and like been like, hey, you guys should take a look at this. But the fact that, you know, most people perceive the, the media as honest brokers of information when that is just you know not true particularly in areas like this and i think that that is, i mean again you know the the media has been losing popularity but still there you know it, most people are just kind of too nice and can't imagine a level of corruption that pervasive across 
the government and the media and that they work together, it's beyond most people's ability to, to understand a, a, a framework of control that, that's that large. Well, it's Mark, not, you have to understand something though, Mark. It's not always done as everybody's got a, a seat at the table. The Arab Rising was, was um, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and she even writes about it in her book. So this is, this is, this is something that she even admits, but it's not the full story in the book. But the big tech and the media uh, let some legacy media players and also uh, our CIA were involved with training people who were using social media and other countries to ostensibly the stated reason was they were being trained to use social media to hold their governments accountable, but they were really civil dissidents being trained to overthrow their uh, despots according to U.S. foreign policy. That's what Egypt was about. That's what Gaddafi was about. There was nothing at all spontaneous other than the fact that the Tunisia fruit cart guy set himself ablaze because of the fines from the police. But I mean, that's, that is, you know, 2010, 2011. So it, it is, you know, when you talk about the, 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 the engagements and the relationships between tech, especially now, and the U.S. government, what we're seeing today here in the U.S. is nothing but a replay of what we did in 2010-11 during the Arab Rising. We, we, have, we have had our U.S. government in bed with big tech for quite some time. People just think this showed up in 2020 because of the censorship and the Twitter files are now revealing it. But this has been going on for a while. So it's, to me, it's not unusual that we would have some coordination behind the scenes with this quote-unquote administrative, administrative state to get what they want in terms of our elected officials. It's, it's, not, it's not inconceivable to me whatsoever. How do you I mean, this has been going on for so long. I mean, even back in, I'm trying to, you know, World War I days, J.P. Morgan had control of, you know, every major media outlet on topics he cared about. I mean, this is, and, and again, like, I don't know the history much, you know, beyond that, but it's not like that. My, my kids asked me, you know, when did this start? And, you know, I said, like, well, there was probably a scumbag monkey out there at some point. I mean, it goes back, you know, before there were humans. Mark, let me ask you this. I mean, we were seeing a replay of a lot of what you're talking about today right now in, the, in front of us with this election on both sides. Uh, do you think they're going to try to mount a massive military operation to kill Trump if it looks like he's going to get elected? I mean, what are your thoughts? Massive amount of massive operation to do what? To kill Kennedy or Trump uh, if if they look like they're going to get power. I mean, again, I think it's hard to say. I will say that you know it took you know it took people like you know LBJ and Alan Dulles and a you know a good you know a good. You know, there was a, you know, this kind of Cold War consensus there and LBJ was pushing back hard. I think, you know, again, killing candidates is not their first choice. And um, so destroying candidates is. Yeah. Like and I think the Democrats feel like they have the primary system rigged well enough that they um you know don't have to kill rfk jr but i have to say that the fact that this guy showed up um you know whatever a couple days ago with all the guns 
you know, maybe they are, you know, the, you know, there could be something bigger being, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I, I really kind of hope not, but there, I'm, I, whatever it is, I've been wondering, like, what is the big thing they're planning? They, you know, could it be? Well, 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 Mark, they are planning something. Okay. And they've announced it and people should take a look at this. Okay. David Brock, who covered the Clintons negatively back in the nineties flipped and now is a Democrat. He's a Clinton, he's a Clinton aide. He's worked at the Center for American Progress. He just came out in the last couple of days since uh, Hunter Biden's been, been indicted for his guns, that in fact now he's going to raise a boatload of money and they're going to go after Republican kids. So, you know, it used to be in politics that, you know, kids were, you know, hands off in terms of covering them. As, and I say this as a political journalist. But, but Hunter's an adult. Haley is an adult. Ashley's an adult. This is not a 10-year-old kid growing up in the White House. And we're talking about some really seedy stuff. We're talking about some, you know, government, foreign governments getting what they want in meetings at the Naval Observatory residence that the taxpayers pay for, where Biden's in the room with negotiating, asking people if, in fact, hey, can you do me a favor and get a guy who's doing a deal with your son in Kazakhstan as Secretary General of the UN? I mean, that's a fact, all right? So when we talk about the, the level of corruption and the level of um, going after people. The Democrats have said, we are going to go after people. David Brock is going to say, David Brock is coming. Oh, well, that's no doubt. I mean, the question is, are they going to be killing them? Oh, no, that, let, let's not let's stop talking about people getting killed at this well, point. I mean, again, it's, I mean, let's I, not give anybody any ideas. Where they're discussing it as an option. Maybe they're saying, no, we oh, got to do they're it. Not discussing it as an op- David Brock's not discussing it as an no, option. No, that's, that's not his job. But he, he's no, but, he's, but he is talking about going after Republican kids and their reputations. I mean, what we have today is destructive. This isn't oh, no, David is like a republic. Yeah, he he is scum. I mean, he is real. I mean, he probably as much as any person is responsible for the level of hatred and division in this country. I mean, and it's sad that that emanates from the core of the Democratic Party. I mean, it's sad that I mean, but that's the way, you know, that is what it is. Okay, on a, on a happy note, okay, you are Mr. Bicycle. You all those all those trail rides that are across Manhattan. Congratulations! Now, when you had to put that together and the outside spaces in Manhattan, did you run into any of this tone, this this timber or politics? Oh well, it's. I mean, again, it's you know trying to you know get bicycle lanes built in Man, in, in New York City is you know it's very challenging it's very contentious i mean the, the you have the drivers the, and the and the people who want their free parking i mean that it's it's not there is no organized deep state opposition but there there is just a lot of really entitled drivers who don't understand how automobiles destroy the living environment in cities and you know, and again, they are disproportionately wealthy and powerful. And, and you know, so it's been, I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years, fighting for livable streets, and every single fight is a grueling battle. Um, and it just takes a ton of persistence. And so I do know something about organizing because I've learned it the, 
the hard way on the ground in New York City. Um, and I think that's what it, it, any social change, it takes persistence and organizing and time. I mean, the, the system is not going to magically clean itself up and it's not going to be you no know, one person is going to be the savior. If we're going to clean up our democracy, it's going to take a social movement that works over generations. So how did you decide that you wanted to get involved with Bobby Kennedy's campaign for president? What was your, what was your epiphany moment? Well, I mean, I mean, so basically, you know, because I've studied the history of deep state corruption and I know about the coup of 63 and I know about 9-11 and I, you know, all of these things, it's a never ending stream of corruption. I never like any of that, but I felt like I just had no useful way of fighting that corruption. And so when I heard that Bobby Kennedy Jr. was thinking about running for president, I mean, right from the first second I heard that, I said, like, I want in. This is a different sort of candidate. I mean, to have a truly honest candidate who has shown that he is willing to stand strong under incredibly vicious attacks. I mean, he stood up in the middle of the pandemic when they were attacking, you know, everybody who wasn't going along with the program and said, no, I mean, it takes incredible courage and fortitude to do that. So you have a person of proven conviction and ability who is smart, who understands the mechanisms of corruption, because that's what's important is that, you know, it's easy to say, I want to drain the swamp, but you have to understand you know, how the system really works in minute detail in order to pull out one by one each of those mechanisms of corruption. So I knew that he would be a different sort of candidate and will be a different sort of president. And so I thought I would never see a candidate like that in my lifetime. I mean, I've, you know, it's always, you know, a combination of people that I find distasteful to outright, you know, repellent to. Okay, everybody I really like you know, never gets beyond the, the margins, really. And I, I like Bernie. I thought that that he represented, you know, he was a basically a pretty honest guy who was fighting for the people. And then, you know, he got shut down. So I think that RFK Jr.'s candidacy has been really positive so far because it's gotten people talking about issues that were completely censored. And these points of view, I mean, so I really hope he becomes president because that would be transformative. But just the candidacy itself is moving this country in a direction it needs to go because people are hearing about issues that the criminals in charge don't want to be discussed. So he's elevating the conversation about the corruption in America, which needs to be discussed. You're absolutely correct about that, because we, we, the, the, the direction of the country right now is not healthy. I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime um, in terms of it's not just the polarization, but but it's the direction of the country. And there's a, I think that you're correct going back to the beginning of our conversation, Mark, when you said that you know a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people do not understand how corrupt DC is. They haven't. Yeah. They have So I mean, it's interesting because I just got together with my you know family for for Rosh Hashanah, and I was talking with some people, 
and I use the term psyop and they're like, what's a psyop? I'm like, I, I, I described, you know, described all of these media operations. They had no idea that anything like that existed. And these are, you know, smart, well-educated people, but the world is basically run and controlled using a series of psyops. And I really think that, you know, from grade school to high school, like kids need to be taught what this is so that, you know, in order to be a productive contributor in a democratic society, you have to understand what's going on. And some people have woken up over the pandemic because they saw the giant psyop that that was. But a lot of people went through the whole thing and are, and are just kind of, you know, never got it or confused or think it was great. And so, you know, we... I think it's hard because, and I think this is honestly, it's, you can't expect everybody in the country to have this profound understanding of this incredibly large, intricate, contra, you know, complicated system. I mean, Christine, you know, you are a lifelong professional paying attention to DC. You have a profound level of understanding. Most people who are just living their lives doing something else, they can never have an understanding that deep. And but we basically, the rules of the game force them to have this very, very deep understanding to process what's going on, which is why I've actually come to the conclusion that the real, true, deepest roots of our, our problem come from mass elections themselves. I think you need Explain to- Explain that. I've heard you say that in other interviews. What do you mean mass elections themselves? So, I mean, so large scale elections, which is, you know, I'm not talking about for a school board or a town council in a small town, because I think there you can actually know the people involved. But when you get to these large scale, I mean, you know, anything other than a small town, basically, if you look at what it takes to win an election, and even for a candidate like RFK Jr., it takes money and it takes- you know, what, what is the standard formula to winning election? You know, you cut deals with a bunch of rich, powerful interests who give you the money you want, or if it's not explicit money, if you're, you know, New York City, the most corrupt forces are the unions. And so there it's, you know, union support. But the, the formula for success is putting together this coalition of corrupt interests or, or not even corrupt, just special interests who want what they want and cutting those deals I mean, that's how you get ahead. And then you also, I mean, just also can't, you know, campaigning is about sound bites and looking good and, you know, smooth presentations. So you end up getting people. I mean, again, I think, you know, Trump is the ultimate example of someone who is a brilliant communicator, but, you know, doesn't understand policy is actually horrible at executing. You know, and but that's what comes out of the, the system. And again, it's not just Biden. It's not just Clinton. It's not just LBJ. I mean, you look, it's, you know, governor after governor, mayor after mayor. It's endemic in the system that we are selecting criminals because I think that's what the system produces with the kind of the rules of the game. Well, I'm so not going to. I'm not going to call every elected official a criminal, but they're I. Not, they're not. No, they're I, not all. But I think if you. No, were, but, but Mark, I think that you're missing something here, and that is people don't understand the history of campaign financing in this country. In the late 1980s, when I was political director at CNN, I, I saw the money coming in. I saw the special interest. I saw the coalition building. I saw the buying of the politic politicians based upon issues. All right. But Walter Cronkite came out, Paul Taylor came out, who was at the Washington Post at the time, and Senator um, Bill Bradley from New Jersey came out and said, and, and so did John McCain. 
We need to stop this. But once we passed at the Supreme Court level, Citizens United, and now some people like it because it says it you know, represents uh, freedom of expression, et cetera. I, at the same time, you know, we didn't have billions of dollars being spent during a presidential campaign until maybe the I think I think that happened in 2008. We reached the billion dollar mark. Now we're talking about that in 2024, it may be eight to ten billion dollars. That's insanity, because the only people that are making money from this are these crazy consultants with the age of the Internet and the age of cable. It doesn't cost as much as a Super Bowl price tag to put on political commercials. So when the when the um, consultants say, "Oh, you have to do the media campaign," the reason why that a lot of the networks in the past, when it was NBC, CBS, ABC, uh, and PBS was there, but they didn't do commercials in those days, is because every four years the networks would be making a lot of money, whether they were and owned and operated in Cincinnati or St. Louis or Boston or the national platforms for those. But now we have multiple uh, stations and multiple platforms, but it's the consultants that are driving this because every four years they're making a boatload of money. And the truth of the matter is you, all you need is having a strategy that has impact as opposed to selling your soul. We have allowed all these lobbyists from pharma in D.C., to pharma at the state legislatures and all these other crazy people that have ideas get together on both sides, Republican and Democrat, to push the agendas that they want in D.C. K Street is loaded, loaded with people who push nothing but agendas for money. That's what the Hunter Biden scandal is all about. And that's what people have to focus on to me in this point in time in 2024. It's the inherent corruption of money that's in U.S. politics. I mean, that's certainly true, but it's it goes back. I mean, look, the standard oil interests, you know, bought a large part of the system back in there. I mean, it's not like money is a new thing. Now, maybe it's gotten worse and more pervasive. And again, well, we've, we've, not- we've legalized it. We've legalized it in the days of Rockefeller Sr. I mean, you know, would he raped and pillaged people and stuff like that? I did, I, what was her name? It was a female journalist who went I after Carbell. Thank you, Tarbell. And Tar and it got to be so bad for J.D. Rockefeller Sr. that he appointed J.D. Rockefeller Jr. to head up the Rockefeller Foundation to give it a nice, fresh face. And they ended up, you know, involved in the eugenics societies. But, you know, and then germs. I mean, you know, we have a level of a, a culture now where people are nasty. It's not just competing with one another. We have people who want to destroy families. I mean, it's true. Again, I, I just don't think that this idea that this is all new. I mean, again, you look at the 60s. It's not clear. I mean, I think our democracy might have been in worse shape in the 60s. I mean, if you look at who, you know, you had a criminal network who, you know, was systematically killing people to to take over and the tension, you know, of the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War. I'm not sure things, you know. Things are probably better today in some ways. Uh, I disagree with you. I mean, again, it's different, but I, I think it's it's endemic in the in the the system. And again, it's not. I mean, if you look at you know, I know New York stuff. I mean, the government in Albany is you know is bought off, and in city government. And again, I'm not saying it's each person individual. You know, there are some good people in the system in the city council. I know people, you know, personally that are good people. 
but you also just see the incentives of of people to um you know they're career politicians like I, i mean and even people who are you know i think very good no there is no political advantage to challenging powerful vested interests and making enemies even if that's maybe the thing that's worth doing and so you just have this level of um you know kind of endemic corruption that just kind of keeps going and and again i think having politicians who constantly have to run for your election and are constantly you know worried about antagonizing powerful interests I, again, I think you could certainly make the electoral system work better, but I think just the nature of math, I don't think getting large groups of uninformed people to make decisions is actually the best way to choose. So what would you suggest? So it, it's a it's a somewhat, I, I have a thing, and if people care, they can look on my Substack. Um, but basically, I have created an alternative idea, which again, I, I've, not, I've not seen any, anywhere else, but it's, it's using um, a series of working groups. It's kind of like juries. It's, it's basically a reimagining what it means to democratic participation. Right now, the idea is that everybody you know, votes in elections. So it's a lot of these very, very small superficial bits of participation in elections. That's what our model of democratic participation is now. What I'm suggesting is changing that to much smaller, rarer, but chunkier bits of participation analogous to participating on a jury. So right now, you know, there are, you know, thousands and thousands of criminal cases that go on in your area in which you have absolutely no say and probably don't even know about, but occasionally you're called to have like a very deep dive and look at a particular situation. And so I'm trying to create an uh, analogous system in um, for choosing um, government officials. So in that is, so the the model I have, so here, let me give you an example. So let's say you're choosing the the mayor of New York City. New York City has, you know, 8 million people or something like that. So step one, would be in my system micro elections. So you take a group of maybe like a hundred people, your hundred closest neighbors, and between you, you choose one person who agrees to be a micro representative. Now that person may never be chosen to do anything, but it's almost like saying, all right, who is willing to do jury duty now? Who, if it time comes to be involved in selecting a government official, do you want? And so I think with that, you're getting people who are trusted by their neighbors who have the time and inclination to participate. Um, and you're getting, you know, a people who are a little bit more engaged and informed, but it's still very representative. And so then out of New York City, you'd have 80,000 micro representatives. And so for the, it, it would probably, for the mayor, uh, choosing the mayor, I would say it would take, in, in my mind, nine working groups, each of about 10 people. So let's say 90 people altogether. So the first five working groups would each choose a candidate. So you get these groups of 10 people together and you say, go pick any person in New York who's eligible for mayor and, and you can put them forward. It could be a business executive. It could be a sports person, politician, whatever it is, whoever you think would be good. And then so then you have five candidates. Then you have three working groups who each do research on the, these candidates, interview people, put together files 
provide information to the final selection group, which again is 10 more people who then use, you know, they have to choose among these five candidates using the information provided. And the people on these groups are all chosen randomly at more or less the last minute so that it's hard to corrupt them. And I think that by having, you know, kind of relatively average citizens who I actually have a lot of faith in, in average citizens, I think the average person, they may not be as smart as someone at the center of the system, but if they're unbiased and not corrupt, and I think most people are, then they would do a better job choosing people. And I think that system, then the leaders that are chosen are not beholden to any special interest. It's a system where even if you know one of those people has a billion dollars behind him and everyone else has no money, it doesn't really make very much difference. Now, again, explicit bribery, things like that are still still risk factors, but it's not automatically bought off. And again, if you have random people who aren't regular participants in the system and you show up and try and bribe them, a lot of them will raise their hand and report you. You know, that's part of the thing with the way the system works is by the time people have been in the system for a while, you know who, you know, it can be compromised, who you can count on to take money and do your things. And that's it. At the middle, it's almost all a bunch of people trading favors and and things like that. So it basically eliminates this kind of center of the system that is so corrupt now. So that is my idea. But again, it, you know, it's a I'm trying to get that idea out in the world because it's a big change. I mean, when you say to people you're not supposed to have mass elections, most people think you know you're calling for a totalitarian system or the end of democracy. What I'm saying is. You know, the democratic model that we have that was, you know, formulated two or 300 years ago was really, a, you know, a very first take at a constitutional democracy that was a, a follow on to monarchy. I mean, the people were, you know, trying to replace monarchy and they couldn't understand all the implications of the rules that they put in place. Now we have a couple hundred years of people using this system and you see Given the rules of the game, it naturally evolves towards this kind of bought-off corrupt system because that's what it takes to run mass elections. If you were to just completely eliminate money, say zero money is involved in running a a large-scale election, then the candidates would be forced to rely on these private networks. Then all of a sudden unions or, or groups like that would be very powerful, which are just, you know, have their base of supporters I you I can't imagine a large scale election which is not subject to corruption somehow just because it takes so much resources to to run those elections. If you think about the process of you know choosing the CEO for a company, if you imagine you know one of those CEOs raised a few million dollars and starts running ads and lobbying people, people would think that was insane and you know and the the board that was choosing them would be like you know what are you go away but that's how our system works i mean i hire a lot of people i you know you know you you know aggressive lobbying by someone you're trying to hire or aggressive campaigning like that's a bad sign and if you look at the founding fathers originally you were you know the the social norms were that you wouldn't put yourself forward as a candidate because it was distasteful I mean, the the whole way we conduct politics today would be considered anathema to the founding fathers because, you know, it, it's just so gross and craven. 
you know, and so it's evolved in a way they couldn't imagine. And I think we need to really go to the roots of that if we're truly to get rid of this corruption. One thing, you know, whether you like Trump or not, one thing I think this whole attack on him has done is kind of ripped the mask off that whole system that you're talking about. So on the GOP side, at least, you have massive participation now at the school board level, at the city council level, at the, uh, you know, all the way up. I mean, it's massive. I mean, 500 people showing up for a school board meeting. You know, that's what is happening across the country. So I think you may be seeing... You're right that lack of participation is a huge issue, but that may be changing due to what has people see what's going on. Uh, you know, they're they're destroying people that want to take power from those in power. Yeah. And I love small scale local democracy at the mm-hmm. school board level. I think there's, you know, because, again, massive money doesn't matter there. You know who your neighbors are. There tends to be a level of civility because you have to live in the same community with those people. And you can really know who the participants are. I mean, once you get to this large scale, like, you know, most people are voting for people that they've never met and that the way they know them is through ads or these, you know, very staged TV appearances. You know, you don't really get to know those people. So I think there's something that's very different from, a. you know, I think, you know, pirate ships were run in a democratic process. I think that is nearly the ideal form of democracy. It's a small group of people engaged in an enterprise where everyone knows what's going on. You know everyone well. And, you know, that I think is where democracy works best. Once you blow it up to hundreds of thousands or millions or tens or hundreds of millions of people, it scales to be something very different where, you know, it's all about superficial appearances and, you know, you have Ronald Reagan, who's an actor, Trump, who's a reality show host. It's it's more about, you know, this very selling this, you know, simplistic, polished image than it is about finding people of substance and, and confidence. I mean, most people couldn't tell you what, you know, mo- what the real job is. Like, what does a senator really do? What is the sort of thing that you want for them? And the, And so... You end up having these litmus test issues that, you know, it, it's just a perversion of what a rational system would look like. Well, Mark, we're running out of time, but I have to ask you because this crossed my mind when you're talking about this. Would you change the U.S. Constitution? I, I mean, I think it needs to be changed over time. And I think one of the great things about that is that the founding fathers put in mechanisms to change the Constitution. I think that. It's going, you know, I think it probably will take, you know, generations for, you know, the idea I'm talking about, you've never heard before. It's, you know, it's still very new. It probably takes several generations for the next set, you know, kind of ideas for how to run a better democracy. But I've been reading a lot of history. If you just talk about, you know, the basic enlightenment ideas that in the 1600s were considered new and out there. And the idea that, you know, you shouldn't have a monarchy and you should have a constitutional government. These ideas that were, you know, hard to conceive of in the 1600s by the 1800s are being implemented all across Europe. And so, I mean, it's not nice to say, like, wait 200 years, things will get better. But I actually am legitimately hopeful that, you know, the arc of history will move in that direction. Have you ever thought about putting your ideas into a book? I, have, well, I do have a Substack post. If you go to mark, markgorton.substack.com, you can read my essay. Um, writing a book takes a long time, and I've always been busy, but I actually do think that I, I do want to promote these ideas, and I have thought about that. 
but it, it, I just haven't had time to write it. I'm busy with so many other things. Mark Gordon, thank you for joining us. Um, and we look forward to um, having you on the show again. Great. Thanks for having me. Have a nice time. Thanks for your yeah. ideas.